No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, Jeremy profiles one of the most interesting and entertaining figures in college football. When people write the Mike Leach obituary, and we hope that's many years from now, many, many years from now, how do you want to be remembered? Well, that's their problem. They're the one writing the obituary. I mean, what do I care? I'm dead. And author Galen White discusses some of the most talented baseball players of all time who are relatively unknown to fans. Several of the players who played with him and against him believe that had he been able to stay sober, Joe Taylor would be in the Hall of Fame. In fact, one of his teammates referred to him as the potential black Babe Ruth. He had cups of coffee in St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Baltimore, but he couldn't beat the bottle. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be profiling Mike Leach, the eccentric and eclectic head coach of the football team at Washington State. But first, we're joined by a reporter non-parial. He's certainly uh, a legendary figure, even at his young age in our business. My colleague, Adrian Wojnarowski. Woj, thank you for joining us. Uh, Jeremy, I'm uh, first of all, great to be with you. I'm not sure what I'm more flattered by, the fact uh, you referred to me as legendary or the fact that you still called me young, because I'm not sure I'm either. Any, I'm not sure I'm either, but I appreciate it. Well, I've got a few weeks left before I turn 50, so I'm kind of calling everybody young because I think then <laughs> I kind of get included as well. It's kind of my strategy right now. Yeah, I'm just on the north side of that, but I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should say, you know, well, what many of our uh, viewers and listeners might not be aware of, you are uh, you are unique, as far as I can tell, in uh, the history of ESPN on the on camera side as being a Bristol, Connecticut native who uh, has risen to a very high position in the company when you were growing up. Uh, in Bristol, uh, what what kind of a presence did ESPN have in the life of the community? Well, actually, uh, Malcolm Huckabee, who I grew up with in Bristol, who played basketball at Boston College, played a little bit with the Miami Heat, actually got drafted by the Tigers off of one season of American Legion Baseball. He does college basketball for us at ESPN, and he's a Bristol native, too, so I want to include him. But I should have been aware of that. I, I should have been aware of that. Well, but... Uh, you know, it's funny. I remember as a kid at the boys club, a couple things. One, I used to play pickup basketball with Tom Mees at the Bristol boys club, who was a wonderful, wonderful guy. Oh. Uh, obviously one of the originals with Bob Lee and Chris Berman. And uh, I remember, and I mentioned this recently to Bob Lee as a kid, uh, I remember watching him pump gas at a, a gas station in downtown Bristol <laughs> and making my father stop the car and watch Bob Lee. Uh, pump gas. It was, you know, everything was self-serve then. You know, ESPN was a, at the very beginning was, you know, a regional, I think the idea was, was a regional sports network. It was going to do the Hartford Whalers and UConn basketball. And then they realized, well, we've got these satellites up in the sky. We can, we can, we can broadcast all around the country and the world. And that's what it became. But um, yeah, I grew up just down the street. My dad still lives in the same house um, that I grew up with about 
you know, a mile from ESPN's campus. You know, what's going on with the NBA right now? It's it's become, as the NFL has been for a long time, a 365-day-a-year league. When did that transition take place, you think? When did it, when was the tipping point? I think the 2010 free agency, uh, LeBron James and Chris Bosh going to Miami, that started to change it. And that started to change free agency. It started to change the interest that fans had, and I think it really started to change the way the teams uh, approach free agency and the way that organizations approach team building and the, the kind of deals that were being done, uh, not just in free agency, but you know the things like teams who would use their salary cap space to take on contracts but get draft picks and the, uh, the strategy that went into it you know, has become this, you know, you cover that all in a way, the way that you're covering teams and uh, on the court during the year. And so, you know, so much of the league has been around what's coming. You know, it's almost like college recruiting, right? People care more about who their school is going to get than the people they have they're playing for them. Now the NBA has become that. And then also shorter contracts when the league changed the collective bargaining agreement, shortened the length of deals you used to have players who could be in. Remember Jermaine O'Neal had a seven year deal and, you know, guys would get six year deals. And now, you know, you see star players who are cycling in and out of free agency more quickly uh, because they're doing shorter deals. We had over 40% of the league in free agency this year. And that's going to be a consistent number going forward. All the deals are one and two year deals for the most part, many of them. And, and then there's opt outs and deals. So, there's just this constant cycling in July of it. And, and so that has just changed it. But I do believe, I don't think there's any question it started with Pat Riley putting that Miami team together. You know, I guess recently in the last few weeks, we've been hearing kind of a backlash to the way things uh, are now done in the NBA and the power of the players. There's a backlash to that in the way that um, uh, the shift, the balance of power is now so complete uh, from the teams to the individual stars themselves. Uh, there are people pushing back against that. I think Adam Silver has said they've got to look at the way that free agency is handled. Now, what, what, what is going to happen there? I think the most, first of all, you know, there, there's two issues. And people talk about the tampering issue. I think there's two very distinct issues. I think most teams, agents, players, I think there's an acceptance that when a, a guy's going to be a free agent and his season ends, let's say player gets eliminated from in April or May, and he's going to be a free agent that July, that there are going to be conversations taking place. I don't think it bothers anybody. The rules say it can't happen till June 30th at 6 p.m. this year. What I think people have the problem with, and I think what is really problematic for the league, is when there are players under contract who have a full year left on their deal, two full years, like Anthony Davis had two full years. Paul George had two full years back in Indiana. Uh, uh, Kawhi Leonard had two years left in San Antonio. And when there's a sense that teams, as one GM said to me, the difference between tampering and interference, don't interfere in my team. And what's going on is you're inter that there's interference going on in the middle of people's seasons with their team, um, often by one team or more than one team, and it's been directed by the agent. And that's not new in this league. This has been going on. 
I think that's the issue more to be addressed than what's the timeline of when we can start free agency talks and players who are, are in the free and clear at the end of their season. I think that will be addressed. I think the league wants to address that uh, and, and maybe create something that is more functional to actually the reality of what goes on. But the bigger issue to me is with players with multiple years left on their deal who are being, you know, told or pushed or uh, encouraged from the outside to find a way out of that place. I think that's the real problem. Not, not that there's deals, not that there's free agent deals done before July one. Well, we got to let Adrian get back to his phone and his Twitter account. It's uh it's a pleasure, sir. Thank you for taking some time for us here on the sporting life. Bristol's own Adrian Wojnarowski. Jeremy, great to be on with you. Talk to you soon. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. These days in college football, the big dogs among the coaches are clearly Nick Saban of Alabama and Dabo Sweeney of Clemson. Between them, they've won four consecutive national titles and six of the last eight. But unlike Mike Leach of Washington State, they're winning in places with very strong traditions. And unlike Leach, they're not trained lawyers or published historians. What makes Mike Leach tick? We tried to figure it out in this E60 story. On his daily commute to and from work, four miles each way, Mike Leach, the head coach of the Washington State Cougars, never worries about traffic. But for the 58-year-old reigning Pac-12 Coach of the Year, there are other concerns. The latest I've come back would be somewhere between 2 and 3 a.m. Got to be a lot of uh, wildlife out there, though, you know, at night like that. There is some. I've seen fox. I've seen coyotes. What's possible, which I'd rather not see, are cougars. Oh, yeah. Because. Uh, Ironic. All right, go Cougs. Mike Leach embodies individualism. Everything that he has done is done with an outsider's point of view. In a profession that rewards those who traffic in banalities, Mike Leach is, well, different. Here's a message from the National Weather Service. <laughs> Candy corn's awful. You know, it's like fruitcake. It's a little mustache. Oh, yeah, there we go. He refuses to conform. Like it or not. Mike is very hard-headed. He didn't listen to anyone. Equal parts colorful and polarizing, Leach is both a brilliant coach and a lightning rod. There's a little bit of drama in all this. There's heroes, there's villains. I do think sports are like that. They might hate me, but I'm still a pretty important part of that drama. Is it too facile to say that from the beginning you kind of had this position as an outsider where you were? Uh, I never really thought of it like that, but the thing is, I did kind of embrace the importance of uh, 
you know, you have to think independently. I mean, it's important to select a path, have a plan, and then, you know, try to do it. Cody, Wyoming. Mike Leach's refusal to be like everyone else can be traced to his frontier roots. Check out the bullet holes in the door. <laughs> Ed's character. This is the football field. Oh, this is the high school right here? Yeah, that, that, that's the same field I played on. Leach played defensive back and wide receiver on Cody's state championship team in 1976. But as his high school head coach John McDougal remembers, Leach spent most of his time on the bench. Are there any plays that stand out that he made? Not really. I mean, <laughs> not. Mike was just fun kid. Never, you know, he just smart. Mike didn't have any aspiration to go on playing ball. He knew he wanted to coach. When I was a kid, I'd read books about coaches, you know, Vince Lombardi, Bear Bryant, all that, writing notes on some quote or something you heard on TV. When I was 15, I started coaching Little League Baseball, and I was the youngest coach out there coaching. In 1979, Leach enrolled at BYU. Although he wasn't a football player, the Cougars' innovative passing game inspired him. It was also at BYU where he would meet his wife, Sharon. One thing that struck me immediately was how driven he was. He had two things he was interested in, and he was going to pursue both of them. Those two things were coaching and the law. After graduating from BYU in 1983, Leach earned a law degree from Pepperdine. But when it came time to find a job, he listened to his heart. He came to me one day and he said, would you rather that I be a lawyer and we make good money, um, but I come home every night miserable, or would you rather have me be a football coach and we might struggle in the beginning, but I'm going to come home happy every night. And I was like, I want you home happy every night. Sharon was always supportive. Now, I got to say that uh, her parents, my mom and several relatives weren't big fans of this, uh, not going into law right away after graduation then taking a job for 3000 a year at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo didn't totally appeal to him. Um, I wonder why. Well, but that's just, uh, that's just the way it worked out. Soon, Leach was toiling at the lowest levels of college football, where he met another young coach with unconventional ideas. We just started these series of long conversations and if you've ever had a phone conversation with Mike Leach, you know you got to allow at least an hour. I knew I wanted to hire this guy because he was smart. Together, first at Iowa Wesleyan and later at Valdosta State and Kentucky, Hal Mummy and Mike Leach created the air raid offense, revolutionizing college football. Touchdown, Valdosta State College! They took a field that was bunched together in the middle and they spread it out like crazy. Then they came up with this idea of high speed, no huddle. Means you've got to get a playoff every 14 seconds. So suddenly, their team's running 80, 90, 100 plays a game. It was exciting to be a part of something kind of from the ground up where, you know, it was kind of ours to work, invent, and experiment and see how far we could take it. Finally, in the year 2000, after 13 seasons as an assistant, 
Mike Leach, at 39, got what he'd always wanted, a team to call his own at Texas Tech. For ages, the Red Raiders had been consistently mediocre. But under Leach, the program became a kind of football laboratory. What a grab by Welker! A petri dish of the passing game. And as with the man himself, things got weird. The pirate thing starts at Texas Tech. How does it start? I'd give the team speeches on various items. I'd talk to them about Apache Indians. I'd talk to them about grizzly bears. I'd talk to them about the wild dogs of Africa. Then I gave them a speech on pirates. And I have a museum replica pirate sword that I'm swinging around. I'm swinging the sword around. I'm still pacing back and forth, swinging the sword around. You know, how are you going to swing your sword? Are you going to have a dull, rusty sword? Are you going to have a, a, a sharp, efficient, deadly sword? You know, to tell you the truth, I, we had really no idea really what he was talking about at the time. One of Leach's star players at Texas Tech was wide receiver Wes Welker. As we kind of went along with it, we're kind of like, we got to go out there and lay it on the line. We're going to play loose. We're going to play hard. We're going to hit people in the mouth. We're going to do all these things. All of a sudden, there's flags all over the place. The band would play pirate type of songs. There would be pirate signs in the stands. There'd be hats and eye patches and stuff. I mean, the fans had a lot of fun with it. Over the years, Leach would become a cult figure in Lubbock and beyond. Now, on Monday, it says bad stuff, serious storms. Well, you're going to be dead in 100 years anyway. Live dangerously. He was the subject of cover stories. He was profiled on 60 Minutes. And in 2008, his Red Raiders rose to number two in the nation after toppling top-ranked Texas. Deep strike, back a big man, and touchdown, Red Raiders with a second to go. But everything was about to change. At this hour, we have some breaking news on SportsCenter. Texas Tech coach Mike Leach has been fired. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. When Mike Leach wants to get away from everything, he comes here to Key West. What is it about this place? I mean, it seems easy to follow. Well, the, the, the biggest thing was, um, you know, you're in grade school and you got to color the map. you got to memorize the capitals. And I'm sitting here, what's this down here? I have to go there. It was always well, I might, I, a goal I, I, to I get might, to I, I might only end up in 10 states, but I will go to this spot down here one way or the other. Leach purchased a home in the so-called Conch Republic in 2009. The spirit of the island. Its legacy of piracy and iconoclasm stirs Leach's buccaneering soul. What's your, like, bar spot around here? Do you have one? Well, I go hang out at Captain Tony's a lot, and that because I know the uh, the owner's a great guy, and so I just, part of it's just uh, interested in talking to him, you know? Right. And there's a lot of folks there, and I, they stuck my name on a stool. <laughs> A lot of a lot of. You're an honorary pirate. Hey, how you doing? 
here's the thing about Mike. As somebody said, it's like tapping a balloon, you know, when talking to him. He drifts. Whatever you say, he'll drift into another subject. That's because he's seriously interested in the other subject. Sam Gwynn is the former executive editor of Texas Monthly. He profiled Leach for a cover story. I think in some ways it misses a big part about Mike Leach. Inside the Pet Rock is a very hard-ass traditional football coach. Last week, did we beat a team going to put put a bunch of draft picks in the NFL? Yeah, we did. But that was last week. How you doing? After 10 years on the job at Texas Tech. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. Yeah. Leach had turned the Red Raiders into a force in the Big 12. The outsider was now the reigning king of Lubbock. And his post-game press conferences were the stuff of legend. It needs to be reviewed. It needs to be redone. The level of officiating in this game, as I mentioned previously, was a complete travesty. He's not going to play the politic game. He's very opinionated. That's who he is. He's kind of got that whole Western spirit, honest, whether it hurts or not, I'm going to say it, mentality. And it hasn't always made administrators happy. (laughs) In December 2009, with the team preparing for its 10th straight bowl game, a blockbuster report was published. Wide receiver Adam James, son of then ESPN analyst Craig James, accused the Texas Tech coaching staff of mistreatment. Specifically, he said that a day after he was diagnosed with a concussion, Leach had banished him to an equipment shed during practice. It's 20 minutes after practice to start. I said, well, get him off the field, get him somewhere safe, because I don't want him around the other, the other players. He's not dressed out, his attitude's terrible, and plus I was going to cut him anyway. This is not common sense, the, the tactics and, and the tools and the method by which he was placed under uh, following a doctor's diagnosis of a concussion. They say you put Adam James here, you put Adam James there. I never put Adam James anywhere. So this very notion that a head football coach is running the offense, ain't calling the plays, is sitting there micromanaging Adam James is one of the stupidest things on earth. But on December 30th, after two weeks of swirling controversy... At this hour, we have some breaking news on Sports Center. Texas Tech coach Mike Leach has been fired. We tried to uh, talk some sense into him. Mike is very hard-headed, and uh, he didn't listen to anyone. But the only person responsible for Mike getting fired is Mike. Nearly a decade later, Leach still insists that Chancellor Ken Hance only used the James incident as an excuse to get rid of him. After all you'd done to turn around that program and make it as successful as it was, why would they have it in for you? Uh, it had to do, it started a year before. So they wanted me to sign a low ball contract. And I'd been there uh, nearly 10 years. So that was year nine. And all I want is what the market says. And they keep trying to pressure me to sign this contract, sign this contract, sign this contract, or we'll fire you. Leach would later sue ESPN and a public relations firm for defamation. The suit was eventually dismissed. What was it like to be in the middle of that, though? It became a big national story, a lot of it on ESPN. That was terrible. My daughter would cry every night, and my wife was upset. You know, it was bad. For the first time in more than two decades, Mike Leach was out of work. 
the vacation home in Key West that he and his wife Sharon had just purchased became a refuge for them and their four children. He looked at it like, you know, he was going to have a break from coaching, and it was his chance to explore some other things that he's interested in. And he had no shortage of phone calls, and I think that he made the best of a bad situation. Out of coaching, Leach dabbled in television and radio. He wrote his autobiography, but something was missing. What made you sure that somebody would give you another chance? I just felt like I was in kind of the height of my career. Um, you know, our results at uh, the various places had been indisputable. Um, people recognized that. Including the powers that be at Washington State. I'm thrilled to be back, Coach. There's nothing like the unity and uh, working together with a team. You've got players, you've got coaches and fans building a program. The Cougars had won only nine games total in the previous four seasons. But just as he had in Lubbock, Leach turned things around fast. And just as he had in Lubbock, Leach's eclectic interests would make him a cult hero in Cougar country. In 2014, he published his second book, a well-received biography of the Apache leader Geronimo. And while most of his peers prefer to stay in their lane, Leach has continued to wade into subjects far beyond X's and O's. If you Google Mike Leach, the first things that show up are videos with your thoughts on Bigfoot and UFOs. Yeah. We've found bones of dinosaurs and everything else, but we haven't found bones that I've heard of, of Bigfoot. Um, on Earth, they say, oh, well, we're the only ones. We're, I mean, really, why? Have you been to the other planets? Have you checked out the other planets? Why do you think it is that people in the media, people like me, feel comfortable asking you these questions and you respond to them when no one else in your position will? No one else will just um, play along. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I, I think you know, coaching's a tunnel vision profession, no question. I guess I think my ideas are as good as anybody else's. So, even though I suspect uh, there's no Bigfoot, uh, it'd be kind of interesting uh, if, if they exist. And the legends are somewhat interesting anyway. Same way with this guy. Also, here. unlike most of his peers, Leach isn't afraid to thrust himself into the world of politics. In 2018, he shared on Twitter a video of Barack Obama making a speech. Only the video had been edited to make it appear that Obama had said things he never actually said. I wanted a summary of, you know, what Barack's was. And that wasn't a very good one, okay? Because first of all, it was out of context. You know, well, it was more than out of context. It was the exact opposite of what he had actually well, said. Well, it was, that's not quite true because he said those words. It was out of context. So <laughs> they're about a page apart. I'm just I never, saying, I never took, but, I but never you, took a position on that. But you concede, Mike, that that was a video that was deceptively edited to suggest he said things. Which, that he which, said. which I did not know that was oh. the case. Okay. First of all, I didn't know that was the case. I want something that, that quickly summarized President Obama's uh, position which I thought that was it, which it wasn't. Eventually, Leach would delete the video from his Twitter feed. But his initial refusal to apologize for posting it was costly. Five Washington State alumni who had agreed to donate a total of $1.6 million to the school 
withdrew their pledges. What was the lesson you learned from that experience? Uh, I should have read the site. I was looking for, you know, people are passing stuff on all the time. I should have thoroughly looked at it. And you're not going to get anything particularly satisfactory on Twitter because it's way too broad. You know what I mean? Leach's brashness is sometimes a challenge for his employers. But his winning ways in places where it's not easy to compete make him hard to replace. Caught! And Winston's going to go! 89 yards! As the new season approaches, Mike Leach is hoping to build on last year's success. In 2018, the Cougars had their best season in two decades. Breaks the pass, takes off, dives, touchdown! And for the second time in the last four years, Leach was named the Pac-12 Coach of the Year. He's a one-off. You could travel far and wide and you couldn't possibly find anyone even remotely like him, which is one of the most compelling things about him. Not yet 60, Mike Leach continues to win and to say what's on his mind. Blazing his own trail through the college football landscape, which without him would be immeasurably less colorful. When people write the Mike Leach obituary, we hope that's many years from now, many, many years from now, how do you want to be remembered? Well, that's their problem. They're the one writing the obituary. I mean, what do I care? I'm dead. The only regret I'll have is that I didn't get to do more things, you know. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Every year at this time in Cooperstown, New York, there's an enshrinement ceremony. This year, Mike Messina, Edgar Martinez... And Mariano Rivera were all inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Our next guest, Galen White, has written a book about players who will never be in the Hall of Fame, but who are legends nevertheless. The book is Left on Base in the Bush Leagues. And Galen White joins us now to talk about some of the most legendary minor leaguers of all time. With the caveat, these are legendary minor leaguers, Galen who never made it up to the bigs, or even close, most of them. This is true, although Joe Taylor, who was featured in one of the chapters in the book, several of the players who played with him and against him believed that had he been able to stay sober, Joe Taylor would be in the Hall of Fame. In fact, one of his teammates referred to him as a potential black Babe Ruth. So that was Joe Taylor. He had cups and coffee in St. Louis, Cincinnati, and Baltimore. But he couldn't beat the bottle. And, and you know, some of these players are um, larger than life, even though they never got. There was always some fatal flaw. There was always something that was uh, preventing them from taking that next step to becoming a major league legend. And and even though they didn't get that kind of exposure, they still um, built up these myths around themselves. You know, when I think of players of this ilk, and one of the players you focus on, of course, is Steve Dalkowski, who many people still think threw a baseball harder than anyone else ever. Almost everybody you talk with who saw Steve Dalkowski pitch believed that he threw harder than anyone else. In fact, Cal Ripken's father, who caught him in the minors, uh, was uh, adamant about him throwing harder than Nolan Ryan, for example. Uh, Jack McKeon, who uh, 
uh, familiar with, very familiar with Steve Dalkowski, uh, thought he threw harder. So it's pretty unanimous that Steve Dalkowski was uh, the hardest throwing pitcher ever. At the same time, he was a very hard drinker, and he, he was an alcoholic. And so it was that drinking that kept him uh, uh, out of the majors. He got close, but he had an injury at spring training just about the time that everybody thought he was going to make. In fact, he had his own Topps baseball card, but he hurt himself and never made it to the majors. And there were control issues as well. Well, his nick, one of his nicknames was Whiff or Walk Dalkowski. One year at Stockton, he walked 262 in the season and struck out 262. It was the char- uh, Dalkowski uh, was the inspiration for the character Nuke LaRouche in the movie Bull Durham. LaRouche. Yes, Lelouch. We're speaking with Galen White about his new book, which is titled Left on Base in the Bush Leagues. Um, it, it's it's the story, as we've been talking about, of some of the most legendary minor leaguers of all time. It, and it's also about a time, Galen, when the minor leagues were much bigger than they are now. The minor leagues, as we now know them, you know, there's AAA, AA, and A ball, and you got rookie league stuff as well. But, uh, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, as you document here, we went all the way down to D-ball, and there was low D-ball. This was the system that Branch Rickey had built in St. Louis in the 1920s, um, where baseball just gobbled up everybody and spit them through this process to see uh, who would emerge as a major leaguer. How Do we have a sense of just um, how big the minor leagues were at their biggest? At the high point was 1949, when there were 59 leagues oh. and 447 towns with teams. The the cover of the book uh, it was taken at Dodgertown. It appeared on Beach. Uh, the Life magazine cover, April 5, 1948, and it shows 515 rookies at Dodgertown. That was just the Dodgers spring training camp, and these guys are looking up at the camera. There's two things about that photograph that are telling. They're all white faces, and, of course, the number of 515 just in the Dodgers' Uh, spring training camp alone. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. It was a totally different system. Of course, it was already changing by the time the draft, uh, was initiated in, what was that, about 65? Rick Monday was the first number one overall pick, right? Well, an expansion prior to that in 61, that was the first expansion. Uh, that, uh, the minors were already, um, uh, shrinking prior to that, you know, television, air conditioning, and then, what a lot of people don't realize is the impact that Little League had on minor league baseball. Uh, there's a chapter in the book called Father, Son, and Little League. It's about Tom Jordan Jr., Tom Jordan Sr., who was a, a great minor leaguer. He's currently the oldest living major league player. He'll turn 100 in September. But Tom had a 338 batting average over 18 seasons. His son in 1956, Tom Jordan Jr., pitched and hit Roswell to the Little League World Series. And Roswell alone, the attendance of the minor league game went from well over fifty, sixty thousand people a season down to seventeen thousand. And of course, it continued to shrink. So, Little League baseball contributed also to the demise of uh, the minors. And I'm assuming we're speaking with Galen White that the impact is. I mean, no one's ever called me a brain surgeon. Um, that the the kids are playing, so they can't attend the games. That's true. And of course, the parents and the grandparents. Rather than go see some uh, professional who they really don't know up until they're coming to town, uh, you know they went to see their kids or grandkids. These these players, though, in the towns they played in, were celebrities, were heroes. Uh, Joe Bauman, who I write about in the book, the 
all-time home run king in the minors with 72 home runs in 1954 at Roswell in only 138 games. He was uh, Bunyanet. Thin air. There was some thin air in Roswell, wasn't there? Yeah, there was thin air and altitude, yes. But he could also hit a ball a long ways. He was 6'5", 245 pounds. And, you know, Joe uh, missed seven. There were seven lost years, you might say, in his career, four in the military, in the Navy, and then three he left organized baseball to play semi-pro ball because he got into contract dispute with the Boston Braves. So, uh, But he was one of those heroes, and there were many other heroes in these small towns across America. And, of course, you know, one of the uh, amazing things about Joe Bauman, I grew up, you know, 72 home runs. That seemed unfathomable that anybody could do that at any level. And now, of course, the major league record is officially 73, held by Barry Bonds. Galen, thank you so much for joining us here on The Sporting Life. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.